Our scripture reading this morning comes first in the Old Testament from Isaiah, the seventh chapter, where the text will be the 14th verse, but I'd like to read the paragraph in which that is found. So we'll begin at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10, and read through the 17th verse. Hear now God's word. And Jehovah spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of Jehovah thy God. Ask it, either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt Jehovah. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, that ye will weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive... And bear a son, and call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, when he knoweth to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings thou abhorrest shall be forsaken. Jehovah will bring upon thee, and upon thy people, and upon thy father's house, days that have not come from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah even the king of Assyria. And now in the New Testament, let's read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 26 to 35. Luke 1, beginning at the 26th verse through verse 35. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this might be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore also the holy thing which is begotten shall be called the Son of God. And thus far the reading of God's Word. I'd like you to take just a moment with me and reflect on the wonder of Christ's birth. It's a wonderful birth, wonder-filled birth. A birth more significant than any other event in human history. More significant than the birth of any other individual who's ever come into this world to live. The entire Old Testament, two-thirds of your Bible, if you will, the entire Old Testament would have been written in vain, would have been written for nothing if not for this birth. The entire New Testament would be meaningless, would not even have been written were it not for this birth. None of God's 
Old Covenant promises would have been substantiated if it had not been for the birth of Jesus Christ. And our New Testament, our New Covenant assurances and our privileges as the people of God would be completely wishful thinking had it not been for Christ's birth. The Christian doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of God's mercy and grace to unworthy sinners could not have been proclaimed for these past 2,000 years if Christ had not been born. Our hope of eternal life would completely vanish if Christ had not been born. Our joyful experience of new birth would be lost if Christ had not been given as our Savior. Our commitment to a lifestyle of love and joy and justice would be for nothing if our Savior had not been born. Our confidence that life has meaning and purpose that good shall ultimately prevail over evil, that there is a new world coming in which righteousness dwells, would all be an empty dream unless our Savior had been born. In fact, the entire history of the Christian church and its formative influence on Western civilization, including the influence of the gospel in bringing political freedom and artistic achievement and socioeconomic progress, all these things would be completely turned around were it not for the historical reality of the Messiah's birth. Truly, the hymn composer could write of that night when Christ was born, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Everything, everything hangs on that momentous evening in Bethlehem when birth was given to Jesus. So who is this Jesus? that's so important. Who is this one? What identity does he have that he could have such an influence in our lives, be so important in terms of the very word of God and the plan of salvation and the course of history? Who is he? Why should the obscure birth of one infant born to an obscure Palestinian woman in the poor and humble circumstances of a cattle shed carry so much significance for us? Why could the child who was born effectively alter the lives of so many people and revolutionize human history? Why is that? Our confession of faith, the Westminster Confession of Faith, answers these questions in a way which I think is necessary in order for the Christian message to make any sense at all. Every other attempt to explain Christianity, which I have read, and I've read many, that does away with the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, turns Christianity into mumbo-jumbo. It doesn't make sense without this crucial event. It's the linchpin of Christianity. It's the linchpin of history. And our confession tells us who this one is. The Son of God, the second person in the Trinity, being very and eternal God, of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole 
perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Well, we have a whole month's worth of lessons found in just that one paragraph from the Confession. Who is this one that was born? The identity of our Savior Jesus Christ, according to the Confession, is both earthly and heavenly, natural and supernatural, human and divine. Pagan religions throughout the years and years of darkness had struggled after and had longed for a visitation from the gods or from God. Pagan philosophers, through years of confusion, had wrestled with bringing together a transcendent realm of law and meaning and the day-to-day -day experience of human uh, life. But always the pagan religions and the pagan philosophers compromised the full reality of that transcendent personal God that we worship or the full reality of the appearance of God in earthly form in human experience. It's only in Christianity, only in the faith that we follow today and profess from the very bottom of our hearts that we find the religious longings of mankind fulfilled as God himself comes into and participates in human experience. You see, the identity of the Christ child who was born is simultaneously human and divine, without compromising either one of those, without shading anything off. We see this as we turn to the text in Luke's Gospel that we've read this morning, a text declaring the wonderful birth of the Savior. And in seeing this, we see the necessity of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. Who is this child that was born? God's word teaches us this morning this child is Mary's child, that this child is the long-awaited Savior, and this child is God's Son. And I want to look at each of those in passing this morning. First of all, the text tells us that this was Mary's child. Luke 1.31, here we have the angel speaking to Mary, and the angel says, Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Very precious verse. I want you to notice how much it focuses upon the reality of Mary as the mother of this one who is to be born. Numerous heresies throughout history have taught that Jesus was not genuinely human, that Jesus was something of a phantasm, something of a ghost, something of an appearance. He only seemed to be human, only seemed to have human flesh. And so the Greek word for seeming or appearing, dakeo, is used of these who were docetists, who believed that he wasn't really a human being, he was just someone who came in the form and appearance of a human being, but was truly God, and that's it. But this verse stresses very much that Mary is the true mother of this being, this person who is to come. You shall conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, a true human conception, in the womb of Mary herself. This one who is to be born is truly human then. 
conceived as any normal human being is conceived. However, there's a miracle involved that we're going to get to. A true conception, as our confession says, that he is of Mary's substance. She did, in fact, provide the human element that becomes the person, Jesus, of Nazareth. Note the special sense in which this child belongs to Mary. In fact, this is rather unusual in terms of the Hebrew culture of the day. The angel says to Mary that she shall bring forth a son and that she shall call his name Jesus because it's not the mother who names the child. It's the father who has authority to do that in Jewish culture. But in this particular case, Joseph, though he may be the legal father of Jesus, will not be the one who names him. Mary, you shall call his name. You shall bear that responsibility. As God has instructed you, you shall call his name Jesus. The problem arises, however, that the identity of this very special woman, favored of God, is that of a virgin. Verse 27, here we read that an angel... Gabriel, by name, was sent by God to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Twice here Luke emphasizes that she was a virgin. It's interesting to me that in the history of 20th century theological controversy, the virgin birth is one of the first doctrines that has been thrown out by those who favor a liberal or modernistic or naturalistic understanding of the Christian message. And often it has been said that the virgin birth is really a trite doctrine, something that's been read back into the text, not really important, not crucial to the central message of Christianity. It's something we can dispense with. In fact, those who argue this way say, in fact, if you look at the four Gospels, the virgin birth is only mentioned in two of them to which that great defender of the faith in the 20th century, J. Gresham Machen, responded in his masterful book on the virgin birth, there are only two Gospels that speak of the birth of Jesus, and therefore 100% of those that speak of his birth speak of it as a virgin birth. May we do away with the virgin birth, Jesus Christ? Is it really just a peripheral detail? Well, if you look at this narrative that we've read this morning, you'll see it's crucial to the plot line. Mary is a virgin. She has not taken up residence with Joseph yet. Though she is engaged to him and there's a legal contract, a binding contract between them, they are not yet husband and wife. That marriage is not consummated. And since she has not known a man, she will later ask the question, how can this be? And so the virginity of Mary is crucial to this story, but not just crucial to the story, it's crucial to the doctrine that I wish you to believe today. To know the identity of this one who was born, you must know that his mother was a virgin. Just this last week, um, I don't ordinarily get to watch as much TV as I do when I'm ill, but I happen to catch a couple of evening programs, and you'll pardon me if I don't have it right because I don't study the TV guide that much, but I think it was 30-something it was called. We have some Jewish man struggling with uh, celebrating Christmas, and he and his wife are bantering with each other about, do you really believe this? Do you really believe that? I mean, how can you buy these religious things? And he brings up, I mean, do you really believe the story about <clears throat> a virgin has a baby? She doesn't know a man. Yeah, right. That's the sort of thing that... Uh, 
If one of your daughters were to come home to say, uh, Daddy, I'm pregnant, but you know I haven't had sex with any man, you'd say, yeah, right. Very hard thing to believe. And yet I want to suggest to you that it's at the heart of the Christian doctrine of who Jesus Christ is, the virgin birth of Jesus. Who is this child? He is Mary's child, but Mary is a virgin. The text also teaches us that he was the long-awaited Savior. Notice that in verse 31, that his name shall be called Jesus. Jesus, Yeshua, in Hebrew, meaning Jehovah saves. We have to understand that Jesus was a fairly common name among the Jews. It uh, is the same as what we say, Joshua in English, Yeshua, Joshua. Uh, and the name Joshua was common among uh, the Jews until the end of the first century. It's interesting that not only Christians, but Jews as well, uh, left off using the name Jesus as a common uh, name after the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. But he shall be called Jesus, meaning Jehovah saves. In Matthew's Gospel, it is explained further, for he shall save his people from their sins. In Luke's Gospel, verse 32 of chapter 1, we read the reputation of this Jesus. He shall be great. This Jesus, this Savior, is going to be one who will establish a reputation for greatness. He's going to do something which no one else shall do. He shall be singled out among men. And his royal position is declared that he shall sit upon the throne of David. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. The throne of David had not been occupied for years. The throne of David had been vacated as the Jews went into captivity. And as they came back and struggled to maintain any identity for themselves under the overlordship of foreign powers, pagan powers, that did not respect their Jewish faith and their commitment to Jehovah. David's throne was not occupied, but David had been promised. Second Samuel, the seventh chapter, David had been promised that one would be placed upon his throne who would then rule forever. One who would be pleasing to God. One who would be a covenant keeper and with whom God would keep covenant and fulfill all of his promises. And so Mary is told, This your son, Yeshua, Jehovah saves, shall be placed upon David's throne. That is his royal position, and his authority and function is declared in verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. The house of Jacob stands for Israel, of course, a way of speaking of the people of God. One is coming who will be born through you, Mary, who will occupy David's throne and reign over God's people. But you see, his royal position, his authority and his function, as important as they are, pale into insignificance when you see the kind of reign that is being spoken of here. His exalted accomplishment will be that he will reign forever. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom... There shall be no end. In Isaiah, the ninth chapter, if you'll turn to your Old Testaments for a moment here, hopefully you'll recall the wonder of those words. In Isaiah, the ninth chapter, 
at the sixth verse. About the coming Savior we read, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forever. The zeal of Jehovah of hosts will perform this. The Savior, when he comes, will be placed upon David's throne, and from that point on, justice and righteousness shall flourish and grow and prevail in the earth forever. The one who shall be born is the Prince of Peace. The one who is a child and a son and yet called Mighty God will rule forever. And so the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah, spoken through the mouth of Gabriel, the angel to Mary, you will have a son, Mary, and your son will be no less than the long-awaited Savior of men. David's throne will now have an occupant and he shall never be removed. And he shall, as Isaiah said, rule forever. You see, some could have expected, even as some have thought today, that this Savior might simply be the seed of the woman. That's what we read in Genesis 3. The seed of the woman shall come and crush the head of the serpent. And that this seed of the woman might be just in some natural fashion a man who God chooses to endow with strength and to bless with rule and to accomplish things for his kingdom. He might be just another political savior like the military commanders that were well known in the Roman world of that day. But you see, that never would have sufficed if full salvation from sin were to be accomplished and a truly eternal reign of righteousness were to be instituted. If one is to sit upon David's throne forever and his kingdom shall know no end, then this one can be no less than the eternal God himself, the mighty God. The long-awaited Savior had to be more than simply Mary's child. He had to be, and this is what we learned thirdly this morning, God's own son. In Luke 1.35, Mary has asked the angel, How can this happen since I am a virgin? I do not know a man. The angel answers and says to her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore also, that which is begotten shall be holy and called the Son of God. The answer to the virgin's dilemma, How can I have a son? How can I have a child at all? Mary doesn't just say, I haven't known a man. She says in the present tense, I do not know a man. I'm not having relations with Joseph even though we're engaged. How will I have a baby then? The answer that is given by the angel also answers the question asked by many theologians. Why is the virgin birth so necessary? Why does it have to be this way? And you know, there are a lot of theories that have been thrown out about this, most of which are speculative and not really worthy of consideration. Uh, some have speculated, for instance, that... Um, because original sin is passed down through the bloodline of the Father, that Jesus had to be born of a virgin so he wouldn't have original sin passed through his blood. 
through his father. I mean, those, those kind of speculations are found in the textbooks, but you won't find anything like that in the Word of God at all. Why is the virgin birth so important? The conception of this child, according to the angel's answer, is going to be without human agency. The conception of this child will be by the miraculous intervention of the Holy Spirit. We are told that the Holy Spirit will come upon her. You know, some wishing to ridicule the text, and some liberals have said that that's a euphemism for sexual intercourse. That what you have here is just another one of those pagan stories of God's, you know, intervening in the lives of men and having intercourse with women. That isn't at all, of course, the use of that Greek expression. It's never found applied in that way, except here, if that's what we're to trust that it means. But rather, we find the Greek expression used throughout the scriptures. For instance, in Isaiah 32, verse 15, it's used of the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit in the day of redemption, that the Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And it's used in Acts 1, verse 8, for the outpouring of the Spirit at the day of Pentecost, that the Spirit will come upon you. And the same way, the Spirit will move in a mighty way in this age of redemption now, and shall come upon Mary in particular, and shall overshadow her. That expression is particularly precious because it's used in the Old Testament for God's presence resting upon the tabernacle in the cloud. In the same way that God in in the cloud, the pillar of cloud was upon his people, and that special presence of God in the tabernacle. So the Holy Spirit will now overshadow Mary. The psalmist often, for instance, in Psalm 91.4, uses this expression of God's overshadowing for his protection, for his mighty care. Mary says to the angel, How can I have a baby? I don't know a man. I haven't had sexual intercourse. And the angel says, Not by human agency. Not in any way that you would expect according to your human custom, but rather God himself and the power of the Holy Spirit will come in this age of redemption and overshadow you, Mary, and shall protect you, and the Holy Spirit shall create that within you, which will become your own child. This child shall accordingly be someone who is set aside, the angel says. The child shall be holy, and although it is true that the Lord Jesus Christ was holy and undefiled, a harmless Savior among men. The word holy is now being used here, not so much in the moral sense as someone who is pure, but rather in the original sense of the word, consecrated, set aside, unique. And so this one who shall be born will be holy and set aside from humanity, from the rest of humanity. This one will stand out. Truly your child, and yet a unique child, a different kind of child. And that's because the Lord Jesus Christ would not stand as a human being, even a perfect and pure human being, would not stand as a human being before God in a position of possible adoption to divine status, rank, and privilege. That the Lord Jesus Christ would not be a human being that God endowed with something special, lifted up to a new rank and profile, but rather the one who would be born would be God himself. That's what the prophecy of Isaiah said in chapter 7 of that prophecy. If you turn back in your Bibles again, 
Isaiah 7, verse 14. Here we have the historical circumstance where Ahaz, in his pious, fraudulent way, will not ask a sign of God, even though God has demanded it of him. And so the Lord himself gives the sign to Ahaz. In verse 14, we read this sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive. Notice, a true conception. And yet, amazingly, the one who conceives is a virgin. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now Gabriel has told Mary you should call his name Jesus, Yeshua, Jehovah saves. But of course, it's just because this one is the son of the Most High God, that he is the mighty God himself, that Isaiah could say that his name would be Emmanuel. It's one of the most precious lessons I had early on as a Hebrew student in seminary, learning Hebrew. When we come across this word in Isaiah's prophecy, to be able to understand it and see it, im, the Hebrew preposition for with. Immanuel, with us, El, Elohim, God. And the one who shall be born to this virgin shall be God with us. Dr. Young at Westminster Seminary argued valiantly for the virgin birth reading of Isaiah 7.14 against many liberal scholars who said that the Hebrew word used here can mean nothing more than a young woman, an unmarried woman, not necessarily a virgin, a maiden as it were. But Dr. Young pointed out, I think very brilliantly, that what the text says is that a sign is to be given, a sign, some miraculous event some wonder-filled thing is going to take place. And then we're told what will happen is this maiden will have a child. As Dr. Young said, if this maiden is just a normal human being who has sexual intercourse and bears a child, even out of wedlock, there's nothing wonder-filled about that. There's no sign involved in that at all. The sign is that this child is Emmanuel. Is God with us because a virgin has given birth to this child? This child's father can be considered none other than supernatural, can be none other than God himself. And so it is in Luke, the first chapter, verse 35, that we read the answer that theologians have been looking for and also find out why this birth is so special and this one can be so influential in the affairs of men. The angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Spirit shall come upon thee, and the power of the Most High shall overshadow thee. Wherefore also that which is begotten shall be set aside and called the Son of God. His special identity shall not be tied in any way to earthly fatherhood. The only way in which we can account for who he is and what he has done in our lives and in human history is by recognizing his supernatural origin, his supernatural identity. He shall be nothing less than the Son of God. Truly Mary's child, truly the Son of God. And so we have in our confession the declaration that he was true God and true man and yet one person, the Lord Jesus Christ.
The wonder of Christ's birth is not the message of goodwill in a cold-hearted world that we hear all about us. The message that here is this poor peasant woman who had to give birth in a stable, and we need to do better than that now. We need to show goodwill toward men in this nasty world of ours. That isn't the wonder of Christ's birth. That doesn't change Western civilization. That doesn't give hope to the hearts of men. The wonder of Christ's birth is not the hope of a humanistic paradise because a good man named Jesus taught us how to love. Coming from such, you know, poor circumstances and yet had love in his heart and set an example and declared to us that we should learn to love others too. You know, the offense of Christianity and the stumbling block that will always make this season of the year and what we are celebrating today as we speak about the Incarnation. Such an offense to men is that his birth was a sign that God had entered human experience. That it was a virgin who gave birth to this son. It's the wonder that God himself sent his own son to us in the person of the Virgin Mary's child, thereby to save a world lost in sin and change the course of history. Only one who was both God and man could do that. It's the wonder of what we're celebrating today as we remember that Jesus came into this world. Wesley put it very well when he wrote in the hymn, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would fill our hearts with a sense of wonder today at the uniqueness of the message that we believe as Christians that we profess to this world, fill us with wonder at what our faith declares about the identity of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that he is truly God and truly man, that he came into this world not by natural generation, but he came into this world in that mystifying, that mysterious, and that wondrous way through the conception of a virgin. We pray, Father, that this would not simply be a wonder of nature to us, not simply a miracle, but would also be a declaration of grace. For this is not just a story that sets the Christian story aside from every other one and gives our faith a uniqueness over all the other religions of the world, but it is a very personal declaration of your commitment to us to love us to love us in your own person to the point of death because the one who died in our place had to be God to complete that process and man to represent us. Help us to see the miracle of the virgin birth but also to wonder in the gracious declaration that is found there, the good news that you've come and you've come to save. Thank you for visiting us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for becoming part of us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.